You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Today, we're pleased to welcome Steve Chalk, who is uh, founder of uh, Oasis nationally and globally, um, and is a face well known to many of us as well. And we're really pleased to have Steve back with us today. So thank you, Steve. Would you come and join us this morning? That'd be really great. Thank you. Would you come and join us? Yeah. Um, Steve, last time we saw you actually at Oasis Bath, um, you were on the screen and it was when you were giving um, your message when the Queen passed away. Um, And we're really grateful of that message that you gave us. But what people don't know, and I think it's okay to tell you now this, um, but the message was sent to us from Oasis Waterloo. Um, And as all video files are, they're given like a title that comes with the, the video. Um, and the title that came of your video for the uh, message that you gave on that particular Sunday was Steve Chalk's Queen Tribute. <laughs> <laughs> You're ahead of me, aren't you? <laughs> so I'm pleased to say at the end of the service today, Steve has kindly agreed to sing We Are The Champions for us. <laughs> Do you know, uh, this week I was on ITV, um, I had to go into... Um, uh, uh, ITV's breakfast programme. What's it called? Good News. No, what's it called? Good, Good Morning, Morning Britain. Britain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went into uh, the studio to do some stuff, but it was the um, it was the morning after R- Rishi Sunak had become the Prime Minister, and um, they got the captions muddled up. And it said the caption under this whole interview I did said uh, Reverend Steve Chalk the new Prime Minister. <laughs> We'd be up so, for that. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. All those in favour. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, anyway, there you go. Excellent. <laughs> well, we've been doing, Steve, this series at the moment at Oasis Bath, which is entitled Rethinking the Bible. Mm. And uh, we're particularly keen to speak to you today about a book which you, you told us that you wrote about five years ago, but then we had the pandemic and all that mm. came with that and um, uh, perhaps we went off the boil a bit. But the, the book, The Lost Message of Paul, Mm. Um, which is my, my copy is looking quite pristine here. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> there is a good, that happens to most books in the world. Well, there is a good reason for that because yeah. I actually just did listen to the audiobook version yeah. on, in the car yeah. when I was making journeys. So I had your your dulcet tones on my journey. Well, you um, probably know more about it than I do, Dave, because <laughs> what happens is you write a book and of course and send it off to get published. And normally you do, um, you know, people ask you to come and speak about it. But because of the pandemic, everything got cancelled. And now I'm writing another book, so I've forgotten what's in it altogether. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if we can jog your memory a bit. So we're looking at this series at the moment, Rethinking the Bible. Um, Steve, why is it an important topic? Why do we need to rethink our approach to the Bible? Well, um, if you don't mind me using one swear word, I'll tell you a story, uh, which I think might be in the book. But um, Winston, Churchill's, um, uh, Winston Churchill's son um, fought in the Second World War. And, um, and he, they, his uh, group found themselves holed up under uh, Nazi gunfire. There was no way out this situation for them. And so they had to hole up for weeks. And the captain of... Winston's son's group um, gave gave him um, a Bible to read. It was the only thing to do. And so he read through this Bible over the two weeks they were there. And then the captain asked him 
at the end, what he thought of it. And here comes the word, it's a famous thing. He said, what I think is that God is a real shit. Because he'd read the Bible from the beginning. And he'd read about the genocide. And he'd read about all of those draconian laws, you know, 613 rules in, uh, uh, laws in, in, in the Pentateuch, those first five books, you know, about women can't do this and women can't do that and they have to be segregated for this reason and that reason and men can't do this and if two men lie together then you take them outside and you stone them to death, etc., etc. So reading the Bible through had completely turned him off uh, Christianity or Christian faith altogether. And I think that that is a reality for lots of people, which we've got to face up to. You know, we can keep rehearsing the fact that we're in the fold, whatever the fold is, but we have a message that we need to stay authentic to. But in order to stay authentic to the message of Jesus, we need to understand what the Bible is. Those draconian rules and regulations um, that tell you that if a woman wears a dress of more than two types of cloth, you should uh, take her outside and stone her, etc., etc. These were written in the Middle Bronze Age. Jesus himself says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, quoting Moses, of course, who was quoting Hammurabi. I don't know if you know that. Hammurabi was the first king of Babylon, uh, um, about 500 years before Moses lived. And there's something called the Code of Hammurabi. If you, have you, has anybody been to, um, have you been to the Louvre? Yeah? Have, has anybody ever got, been to see the Mona Lisa? Put up your hand if you've been to see the Mona Lisa. Right. Put up your hand now if when you saw the Mona Lisa, you thought, wow, that was really worth coming for. <laughs> Put up your hand if you were slightly disappointed. Yeah. Well, do you know that here's the thing. What you didn't know when you were watching it, looking at the Mona Lisa, is you were just five minutes away from seeing one of the most stunning and surprising and faith-informing things on the planet. But no one was directing you to what I think is the greatest treasure in the Louvre, bar none. And it's called Hammurabi's Code. And it's, it's, a, it's literally a five-minute walk away. What is Hammurabi's Code? It's a giant block of stone with a load of laws written on. Because when you hear about Moses' Ten Commandments, you go, they didn't really write on stone, did they? You can go in the Louvre and you can see Hammurabi's. It's just a giant, it's about six feet high. It's uh, perhaps seven feet high. And it's got lots of rules on. And it's 500 years before Moses. And here's one of them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. A bone for a bone. A wound for a wound. A bruise for a bruise. A life for a life. And you look at this, because it's all translated into English and several other languages. And you think, so Moses nicked it off someone else. And then you realise this is all about what the Bible is. You realise something else, Ian, because... And then it says underneath, except in the case of a freed man, that's a slave who's been set free, in which case an eye um, 
for a fine, a tooth for a fine, etc., etc., except in the case of a slave. And in the case of a slave, it's an even smaller fine. So the idea is that if you take a uh, slave's eye out, it's a, it's a peripheral thing. When Moses comes along 500 years later, Middle Bronze Age instead of Early Bronze Age, he stands up and says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. And they're all going, we know that, Moses. Because they did. Because the Babylonians was the dominant superpower. But Moses says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a bruise for a bruise, a life for a life. And then they know the rest. And he just stops. So the great revelation and breakthrough of the, ten, uh, of, of the eye for an eye statements is there's equality. It used to be inequality. Now, says Moses, everybody's life counts for the same thing. But it's still about retribution, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Then you get into the New Testament, <laughs> and Jesus says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, love those who despise you. Pray for them. So this is about forgiveness and restoration, not retribution. So, last sentence, when people say, I believe exactly what the Bible says, the question is, which bit of the Bible do you believe? Because you can't believe it all. Because it says different things on the way through. Because it's a library, not a book. Does that make sense to you or not? Or does it confuse you? <laughs> I sense we could keep going on this particular yeah, question yeah. for the whole service, yeah. which is a, a great topic. Um, but when we come to your book, uh, The Lost Message of Paul, uh, The Lost Message of Jesus, which came before that, uh, yeah. was really inspirational for me when I was doing my deconstruction of uh, what I believed and, and reconstruction. And The Lost Message of Jesus, um, I recommend to people as well to read. Um, but The Lost Message of Paul, why is Paul so important to Christians and why should we be bothered with it by him? So, so I wrote The Lost Message of Paul because people don't like Paul. I, uh, people don't like Paul at all. Women don't like Paul because they think he's a misogynist. He was against women. He didn't want them to speak in churches. He wanted them to stick to making the tea and arranging the flowers, but not lead. You know? People don't like Paul because they think he was against uh, gay people, homosexual people, anyone who wasn't, in, um, uh, who wasn't in a heterosexual marriage. People don't like Paul because they think he was against most people and judgmental. People don't like Paul for all those reasons. In fact, the book came out of the fact that I said to um, one of the leaders in Oasis in the church in Waterloo, I said, I'm going to do a little series of sermons on Paul. Now, this person, um, she has a degree in theology from Oxford. Uh, and she said to me, whatever you say, you won't change my mind about him. <laughs> Actually, she read the book and she, she read the book when I'd, I'd written it and then long conversation with me and she cried. And she cried because what I wanted to do was not rehabilitate Paul. I think that the world's misunderstood Paul. They think Jesus was a nice guy. You know, Jesus went around saying, love your enemies. And he went around healing people and doing lovely stuff. And then Paul came along and complicated it all with sentences that are unintelligible, with pa 
paragraphs that, that you just can't penetrate and with loads more rules and regulations, almost as bad as those ones that we were talking about in the Old Testament. And what's more, of the 27 books of the New Testament, he wrote or had something to do with 13 of them. He wrote or had something to do with nearly half the New Testament. So people get turned off again. That's the point. I have so many friends, so many friends who, who are deeply spiritual, but they don't want to go near a church. I've got so many friends who, who, aren't, who are LGBT and they're scared stiff of churches, scared stiff. They're scared stiff of even singing the songs. You know, they come into our church in Waterloo, the Irish church in Waterloo. I've got a really good friend, his name's Matt. And, and, and he had a global job with a, um, with a big publicity company. In fact, the biggest publicity company in the whole world. And he told me this thing. So he's really smart. And he's one of their global directors. And the church in Waterloo, the Irish church in Waterloo, has got some steps that go up to the front door. And he told me this. He told me, he said, I used to come every Sunday and stand at the bottom of the steps because I was told that this, your church, was inclusive. And he said, then I used to listen to the hymns being sung and I froze and I turned away because the songs, I just couldn't, these were the very songs I suffered under for year upon year upon year. So I think that it's, it's not rehabilitating Paul, it's like saying, Paul isn't this guy. And he's been misunderstood. That's why I wrote The Lost Message of Paul. Should we not just consider him to be a crazy evangelist which has no relevance today? I mean, can we not read it in that way? Is, is, was that who he was? Were, we, well, were you reading too much into it? Well, then you're saying that half the New Testament has no relevance to today. I, by the way, all the draconian, you know, Middle Bronze Age rules and regulations, are, uh, you know, about what you can wear and what you can eat and what you can't eat in the Old Testament, I don't think they're irrelevant either. I think it's just how you see the Bible and what the Bible is. If we weren't English, if we were French, we'd know what the Bible is because it says Bible on the front cover. Bibliothèque. It means library. It means library. If you open the first page of the Bible, it, first thing it says, the books of the Bible are, and then list them all out, doesn't it? It's a, it's a library. So, so the thing is, this library is composed of books written over at least one and a half thousand years in several different languages by lots of different authors with different perspectives, different politics, different outlooks, different personalities. When you go to a library, I don't know what your thing is, say your thing is architecture or, or, or biology, you go, why do you go to a library to study your subject? You go to a library because you're going to get different perspectives. If you only want one perspective, what's the point in going to a library? So we go to the Bible, which is a library, and then we say, I, I believe everything the Bible says. Well, here's I, Cornelia, my wife and I, a few years ago, just before the lockdowns, we went on holiday to Crete. You know that wonderful Greek island, Crete? You know what, um, you know what Titus says about Greek, about Crete? Do you know that? The book of Titus says, all Cretans are liars and cheats. Now, that's a quote from a poet. 
And then the writer of Titus says, and this saying is true. Actually, I found loads of uh, Cretans who are wonderful restaurateurs and, and jolly nice people. So is, is all the Bible true except for that verse? Anyway, there you go. So it comes back to how we rethink the Bible and how we view the Bible and how we How you it. view the Bible. And to take the Bible seriously isn't to take it all literally and it's to understand what it actually is rather than what it isn't. And if you understand the Bible as something that it isn't, then you end up with this, this faith that you can't stick to. Whereas if you take the Bible seriously and understand what it is written in some of its history, some of its prophecy, some of its poetry, some of its metaphor, some of its historical narrative. It's written in different times. The, the Old Testament teaches you how to trade slaves. It actually tells you how to be a slave trader. I worked for eight years for the UN as their special advisor on anti-trafficking. So was I was working against the teaching of some of the older books of the Old Testament. Whereas Paul, in his writing, in the New Testament, he says that slave traders can have no part in God's kingdom. Different opinion. We hold to inclusive values, of course, at Oasis. It's very much central to what we believe here. Um, but Paul has been misquoted as saying, or maybe misquoted and maybe can elaborate on that, um, as being all about who's in and who's out. Mm. Um, and um, it's all about heaven and hell and who's in, who's out, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, have, we misunderstand, have we misunderstood Paul, or is he in contradiction to our beliefs here? So here's the thing. What Western Christians, evangelicals and, and Catholics, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, believe about heaven and hell has never been believed by the Eastern Church. That's the first thing to say. So the Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, for instance, has never bought into our say this prayer or you go to hell. You know, but, but join up for Jesus or God's going to get you. You know that message? God really, really, really loves you. But if you don't say this prayer, you're going to burn in hell forever. There's a Catholic version of it that goes like this. God really, really, really loves you, but if you don't come to Mass, you're going to burn in hell forever. Some of you are familiar with that context. I have to tell you, one of my, my really good friends is the dean of, of um, Southwark Catholic Cathedral. Do you know? So, uh, you know. So, and these narratives are not in the New Testament, or the Old or New Testament, actually, but we can un uh, unpack that as you go. What does the, uh, the Orthodox Church believe? You, the Orthodox Church, and, and you can check all this out on Google, don't take my word for anything I say, you know, never take any preacher's word for anything they say, always check it out, be careful who you listen to. Uh, by the way, I would say this, a really good sermon, what's a good sermon? It's not a good, good sermon because it's got some jokes in or some great stories in. It's a good sermon, a good talk, if you go away debating it and thinking about it and reaching your own view and opinion. Anything I say is my opinion. It's not come down from heaven. You know, it's just the way I, the way I see stuff. But if you check out um, a, a Greek Orthodox Christian symbols, 
an iconology, you'll discover that there's endless, look it up online, the images, that you'll see a picture of Jesus, whereas we have the cross and et cetera, et cetera, you'll see that the, 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 the great thing in, in it, one of the great symbols in uh, Greek orth- the Greek Orthodox Church, for instance, other Orthodox churches, the Eastern Church, is a picture of Jesus and he's standing on what, what looks like a wooden bridge that's broken. And it's like you think, oh, he's going to fall through the floorboards, you know. And then there are two people, one on each side. On one side, there's a man. On the other side, there's a woman. And they're under the floorboards, it looks like. And they're reaching up. And you'll see, there's thousands of these. It's the most prolific icon of the whole Eastern Church, always has been. And you think, what's that about? Do you know what it's about? The New Testament says, and it's in our creed, when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into hell. Yeah, you know that? He, why, did he, why do we say that in a creed? He descended into hell. Because it's written into the New Testament. And, and remember in Matthew's, gospel he says the gates of hell the gates of Hades cannot prevail against me against my church so the eastern church has always taught that when Jesus died on the cross before his resurrection he descended into hell and he descended into hell to smash its gates and free everyone that was caught there and that that what looks like those broken floorboards is the smashed gates of hell and the man and the woman are Adam and Eve. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all, everyone is resurrected, lives. And that's what it's about. So we've ended up with this. We go to heaven because we're good people. You all go to hell because you're either bad people or even the wrong type of Christians. What, what the Eastern Church believes is what Jesus did, he did for the whole of humanity. And you know what? If it's an in and out basis and it's uh, Christians are going to be in heaven or those who have said a certain prayer are going to be in heaven and everybody else isn't, I think I'd rather fancy my chances in the other place sometimes. Do you know, I don't know if anybody else thinks well, that. Well, I always think it's, it's wonderful because I grew up in a Baptist church that was almost like, um, which was very strict. It was called a strict Baptist church. And um, that's a theological strictness. You know, there, there are strict and particular Baptist churches. And mine was very strict and pretty particular. Let me tell you, I mean, we were like against everything. You know, if it, if it was fun, it was wrong. And uh, that's, that's what I grew, grew up with. You know, even chewing chewing gum wasn't approved of in the church I went to as a kid. And that's honestly true. And uh, anyway, this, this, this kind of strict and particularness we believe we were right. Down the road was a Church of England church, and across the road was a Methodist church, and on the other side, this is in South Norwood in London, just down the road was an, an, um, St Chad's, the Catholic church. And we knew, as kids, you know, got a brother and two sisters, we knew the Baptists were right, we were right, the Anglicans were very dodgy and... It, maybe they'd make it, but, you know, it was touch and go. You know, why take a chance when you could be a Baptist? That was kind of the way we saw it. 
The Methodists were very weak and woolly and wah, you know, probably nothings really. And the Catholics, well, the Pope was the Antichrist. That's what I was brought up to believe. It's ridiculous, isn't it? So isn't it funny how our branch of Christianity always turns out to be the bit that got it most right since Jesus was on earth. Of all the Christians in all the cultures in the whole of the world across 2,000 years, we're right. What a relief. <laughs> I've got loads more questions no, sorry, here, which I could, ask, I, know, I could ask loads of more questions. However, um, we're going to take a break now and um, we're going to give an opportunity for you to ask some questions as well. We've got some good questions here to ask you, Steve. Um, some about the lost message of Paul, some about Paul generally, some about the Bible, and some about just about Oasis. Um, so let's keep on the Paul theme for the moment, though. Um, what do you think the best, most visionary thing Paul said was? Oh, that's an easy uh, question to answer, actually. Um, and it's this. Paul said several different on several different occasions, you are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, 16th century, you know, 1517, nailing his 95 theses or points to the Wittenberg Cathedral door, and you know, the start of the Reformation as it goes down. He said, you are saved by your faith in Christ. And I guess loads of people in this room you believe that you are saved because you believe the Bible teaches that you're saved by your faith in Christ. Actually, what Paul taught, because being saved by your faith in Christ is a phrase that, that Martin Luther picked out of um, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. But what we now know, and actually what we knew before, was that that isn't how to translate the Greek term that Paul used at all. To be slightly technical for a moment, Paul writes in Greek, but he's a Hebrew. So he's a Hebrew thinker. He's a Jewish lad. He's six to ten years younger than Jesus. His whole life has been transformed by Jesus. He is as committed to following Jesus as he used to be about stamping out that heretical Jewish sect. Paul never becomes a Christian. He's a Jew. He is born a Jew, lives a Jew, dies a Jew. He really does. But he's a Jew who's come to understand that the Jewish Messiah that all Jews prayed for, who, who was going to rescue Judaism and every Jew, not based on the amount of faith or their amount of doubt, but God was on the side of the Jewish people because God had a covenant with them. And part of the covenant was that they were his people and he would look after them. That's the deal. God is the redeemer of all Israel. Paul is a Jew. He writes in Greek, but he's a Jew and he knows this is true. And everybody's waiting for the Messiah to come. The Messiah gets translated in Greek as Christ. It means the anointed one, the one that is going to bring God's redemption to all Jews. Every single one of them is in. And he's against the first followers of Jesus. And you know, he tries to wipe them out. Um, and he tries to wipe them out because 
they're following the wrong person. They are following a would-be Messiah, but this Messiah is dead. And Israel's got to stand together against the might of the Roman Empire that's oppressing them. You, you, you've got to back a living Messiah. The Messiah can't save all Israel if they're dead. And Jesus is dead. But as he goes off to pursue these Jewish heretics who believe in a dead Messiah... He encounters Jesus. It's the stories in Luke's uh, Math, in Acts chapter nine. He encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus is alive, and with the same amount of energy that he's pursued these first followers of Jesus, he now joins them because he realizes this Messiah is alive, and he donates and gives and volunteers the rest of his life to doing this. You know, Paul. He spent, we know that he, he covered about 10,000 miles journeying on the transport systems of the day, which was basically walking or riding on a donkey or getting on board ships. He was, he was, he was in at least three shipwrecks, but he will not give up because what he's discovered, Ian, is this, that what was true for the Jews is now true for everyone. Jesus isn't just the Messiah, the anointed one for all Jewish people. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one for all people. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all are made alive. And we've ended up with this stupid gospel, this strange gospel. As in Adam, you all die because you're all born into your sin and everyone's going to go to hell. But some are saved through Jesus. But Paul said, as in Adam, everyone dies. I've discovered he's the Messiah for the whole world. So what uh, Luther did is he mistranslated, he misunderstood. Uh, If you read through Romans chapter 3, verses 21, 22, 23, it says there in your Bible, it still say that you're saved through your faith in Christ. But if you've got an up-to-date version of the Bible or a really old version of the Bible, like the authorised version, you know, the King James version, or even the Tyndale version, which I'm sure no one's got, or anything before that, it doesn't say you're saved through your faith in Christ. If you read the King James Version, it says you're saved through the faith of Christ. And if you read the newest translation of the NIV, the New International Version, down that it says in the text, still the latest one, but it's it's a latest innovation. Because when I was given an NIV Bible, when I was ordained as a Baptist minister, it used to say, it used to say, you are saved by your faith in Christ. Now, it says, you check it out. If you've got any version that came since 2011, down the bottom, it says, you're saved by your faith in Christ, but there's a little letter, like an A or a B, beside it, and you look down, and at the bottom it says, or by the faithfulness of Christ, which is what the... Um, which is what the Orthodox Church always taught. We're saved by Christ's faithfulness, by what he did. He's the Messiah for everyone. As in Adam, everyone dies. So in Jesus, everyone, the whole world, all are reconciled to God. It's a big difference. Do you think that's revolutionary or not? 
It's not about what you believe. Yeah, can I say one last, yes, last thing? Quickly. You see, the trouble with being, believing that you're saved by your faith in Christ, let me tell you about you, it's not I can read your mind, you worry. You worry eternally because you worry that you've not got enough faith in Christ. I mean, how much faith is enough faith to get in and how much doubt is too much doubt so it locks you out? You know, and what do you, we all, so, so you end up with these Christians who all talk about we're saved because God is gracious, all creeping around, not being honest with each other because they've all riddled with doubt and fear. You are rescued because Jesus is faithful, not because of anything you happen to think or do on any particular day. That's pretty revolutionary. This might be releasing to people this, this morning. It might be, they might throw up lots more questions. We have got a deconstructing um, group which has been set up as a micro hub. Um, so if you're interested in that, then uh, do, um, you can find out more information about that. Um, and uh, that might be a good place to sort of, uh, to, to go through some of this deconstruction process yeah. and reconstruction. Is it, is it worth saying that if you ever, this isn't uh, hands up for geography of the world. Has anybody ever had the fantastic fortune of going to the city of Rome? Yeah, and the Vatican. And have you been in the Sistine Chapel? Do you know? And in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo has got two big kind of paintings, doesn't he? One on the roof, you know, the finger of God, do you know, reaching out to Adam. What a graceful picture that is. Do you know he painted that when he was a young, young man? And it's God reaching out to Adam in an all-embracing love. And in a completely different style, at the altar end, you know, there's a giant mural painting called The Last Judgment, which is all about people being sent into hell, writhing and all the rest of it. And he painted that right at the end of his life. He had read a book by Dante, you know, Dante, the divine, uh, the divine comedy, which Dan Brown got his books out of, Inferno and all the rest of it. Dante made up this poem you know, and the poem is all about how God was going to curse people. Dante lived in the 1300s. Um, uh, Michelangelo lived in the 1500s. 200 years later, um, Michelangelo paints Dante's poetry on the wall of the Sistine Chapel, which is the greatest advertising board in Europe. It's the greatest social media of the day, and the whole church falls for it because it keeps the powerful in power. You have to believe what we believe. You have to do what we say, or else you're going to burn. And it's not in the writings of Paul. In the writings of Paul, you are rescued. You are loved by God, not because of what you did or thought or believed, but because Christ is faithful. And I think that Paul adds one last, last kind of revolutionary phrase. He says, God loves you. You're in. Everyone's in. By the faithfulness of Christ, you're in. And his, his closing point is, so now live like it. Be those people. Live a life that's extraordinary. Live a life that's transformational. Live a life that brings grace to others. Run the living room to pick up on what Joe said. Invite people in. Smile at people. Talk to people. Give yourself to people. That's what Paul is saying. Live the way of the Spirit, the way of Jesus. 
This is a great question I've got here. I want to ask this one. Um, we talked a lot today about rethinking the Bible, rethinking Paul, rethinking about the whole in and out thing um, and our progressive values here at Oasis and our inclusive values at Oasis are something which um, many of us have been through that sort of deconstructing and reconstructing and rethinking of our faith and, and, and coming out with a, a more inclusive and progressive uh, theology as a result of that. Um, but it can be difficult when you've got friends uh, who haven't been through that process. So the question here I think is a really good one. What advice would you give to talking to reformed Christian friends without compromising your values whilst not allowing yourself to get hurt? I, th- I, I would say for me, you know, we're, we're all on a journey, aren't we? You know, if I were to ask you, do you believe exactly what you believed five years ago? Of course you don't, because you're alive, you're growing. We're all changed by every discussion and debate. We're thinking, we're growing and developing. So here's another question. What will you believe in five years' time? Do you hope to have matured and deepened over that time? Do you hope to have learned anything? Do you hope to have grown more gracious, more Christ-centered, more loving? Of course you do. So we're all on a journey. Um, It's ever so easy, isn't it? as we journey forward, to look down on people and go, huh, I used to believe that when I was blind. Now I can see. <laughs> oh, dear. These people are to be pitied. But people who are ahead of us, we go, huh, liberals. <laughs> and I can't lie, like anything goes with those people. We're on a journey, all of us. So let's not despise others. And we don't win anything through despising someone, you win people through relationship. Always understanding we're all on a journey and understanding that they might be perceived as being behind you or me on something, but in other things, they'll be ahead. We're not a finished article. We're journeying and learning and being probed all the time, having to learn new things. So... The more understanding you have your own, own flawedness, which in my case has been easier as I get older. You know, the older I get, the more I realise I don't really know much about anything except that God is love. Shall I tell you a story? We just, this is a real quick one. Carl Barth... Do we believe that? Okay, no. <laughs> Carl Barth... Karl Barth is probably, you know, one, one of the great, in fact, a lot of my, in that book I've written, I've written a lot about Karl Barth's theology. That shouldn't put you off. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. And uh, Karl Barth um, was, was, you know, he stood up against Hitler, you know, with his small group of friends. Uh, he lived the last part of his life in America uh, as a result of standing up against Hitler. And in, uh, and in uh, towards the end of his life, the editor of a giant magazine in America, which is called Christ- Christianity Today, Christian Today, asked Karl Barth very publicly um, what his greatest theological insight was, because he was trying to dig at Karl Barth. And Karl Barth simply said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. What a great theological insight that is. You can live in that and inhabit it, but it leads you to a place where you're not quite as ready to judge others 
for where they are. But I should say, Ian, that I realise that, say, you know, if you're LGBT, to be put down by someone isn't a good thing. Don't allow yourself that. Don't put yourself in that, that place. Don't feel because someone like me will take on people, you need to. You don't need to be hurt. You don't need to be abused. You don't need to be put down. You don't need to fight every fight. Um, and it is really hard to love and be gracious to someone who's just despising you. Steer clear. I always say to Christians, be careful who you let pray for you. You know, because when you say, oh, please pray for me, and people pray a whole load of garbage into your life, and then you're buried under that guilt for the next decade. I should stop talking, Ian. <laughs> no, it's great. It's all good stuff, and so many other questions that we could go off on different angles on. Um, I want to get this one, and this is taking us off Paul a bit for the moment, um, and taking us on to Oasis. Um, and the question is, I saw you in 1992 or 1993 in London talking about setting up Oasis youth work teams. Um, how have you seen God's hand in the decades since then? So have you seen those developed? Um, and do you ever see the seeds you've planted and grow later on as those sort of young people have got older? Um, and this is some, from somebody who's now working in Oasis Academies. Um, so they've come full circle. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the great thing for me. You know, I was saying to someone over a cup of coffee earlier, I'm really a spare part in Oasis, to tell you the truth, in lots of ways. Oh, oh, oh yeah, we sit in this table, you know, because no, what you're talking about. So, so Oasis is led by some extraordinary people, do you know. Um, the UK boss of Oasis is a guy called Dave Parr. You would have met Dave. Dave joined Oasis as my volunteer driver years ago because I had to dash in around the country. I used to have a driver, you know, and I used to take on a volunteer for a week, a gap uh, for a year, a volunteer for a year each year, and it was like a gap year, and they just used to drive with me. Well, Dave joined Oasis as a volunteer driver, and then he went to work for Oasis in India, and then he came back, and then he worked with me again, but not as a volunteer driver, but rather an organiser with me, and then various other jobs. And now he is the boss of Oasis in the UK, which is fantastic. And so I work for him now, which is, which is amazing. He's brilliant. And there are endless people. Well, look, you've got Joe here. Like, it's fantastic, isn't it? Do you know, I can't tell you what a delight it is to me to watch Joe. Honestly, it's, you see, I'm going to cry if I'm not careful. Um, I think it's just fantastic. Here is this woman who's absolutely wonderful, but she's not heterosexual. And because she's a woman, and because she's not heterosexual, Joe will tell you a story of being banished from places. And here she stands on this stage as a leader. I'm happy. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I am. Anyway, so Oasis is full of wonderful people like that. And in terms of youth work, well, do you know one of the things we're working on, we're going to open next year, which is absolutely fantastic. It, 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 uh, we're going to open an alternative to a youth jail. It's called Oasis Restore. Have you heard that phrase, Ballstall, term Ballstall, you know, youth detention centre? Well, there actually is a place called Ballstall. It's where the first youth detention centre was built in 1903. It's in a village called Ballstall, which is in Rochester in Kent. 
and, and the youth detention centre got known as Borstal because it's in Borstal. And uh, then Borstal became the generic name for youth detention centres. It's a bit like Hoover. You know, you say, I'm going to Hoover up. But you might have a Morphe Richards or a Dyson or something, but you still say, I'm Hoovering. And Hoover got nothing to do with it. Well, Borstal became that. And then, um, and then a long campaign with government that began in 2010... Um, with, with the government minister that was responsible for justice in this country then. He was called Chris Grayling. Well, he's still called Chris Grayling. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I met him at this thing, and he said he was the Secretary of State for Justice. And I, I said rather cheekily, I said, oh, I didn't know there was much, you know, around, around the UK. Anyway, we got into a conversation, and I said, there's no justice for young people. Do you know who we lock up who's young? because we, we got into youth work and we have hundreds of youth workers around the country working for Oasis. We work in custody centres and we work in accident emergencies in hospital. In Manchester, we actually work on the ambulances with the, with, with the paramedics. It's amazing. So when a kid's stabbed, we turn up there because a, a child will not tell the truth to a man or woman in a uniform. That's the, that's the reality. So, we do, so all of that. So I was talking to Chris Grayling, and I said, you know, the people we lock up, they're not criminals. What, they've done criminal things. You know, 3% of everyone, all children in England are looked after. You know, you know they're fostered, looked after. 47% of all the young people we lock up are looked after. Black kids are massively overrepresented. Autistic children are hugely overrepresented. If you're looked after black and autistic, you have pretty well no chance in our society. Anyway, I banged on to them. And they've got to listen to you because we're doing youth work. And so what's happened, it's a long story, but next year, the law has been changed to allow Oasis, for the first time, a charity to run a jail. But it's called Oasis Restore. It's therapeutic. Um, they gave us this site, the old Borstal, then we fought and fought, and in the end, agony it was, but they gave us £44 million extra. So we've done away with the cells, we got bedrooms, We've done away with the bars, we got glass. We've done away with steel doors, we got wooden doors. We've done away with the wings, we've got student flats. Because what we're going to offer young people is a therapeutic opportunity to leave behind the agony and the ghosts of the trauma and abuse and rejection that they've lived through. So yeah, Oasis is involved in youth work, yeah. It's half past now, so we've got to finish our formal time together. There are so many more questions you may have from either the uh, message of the lost message of Paul and the rethinking of how we how we uh, think about Paul in our society and how we communicate that to other people. There may be questions that you have around that. There may be other questions around Oasis, and Steve's going to be around. You've got to get the train back to London um, mm. in a bit, but you've got time to stay oh, around yeah, to yeah, chat to people time. first of all. And yeah. Could I could I say one thing? Next year in Bristol we're going to open a teacher's training college. So, it's youth work again. You see, we think of education as one thing and of youth work as another thing and as justice as another thing. We're never going to get anywhere until we realise it's all the same thing. 
It's got to be joined up. We live in such a siloed world, don't we? So we applied for um, the uh, we applied for a government, I suppose it's a contract or something, uh, to start what's called the National Institute of Teachers. Do you know 40% of teachers leave the teaching profession in the first five years? Because the training doesn't equip them to work with kids, you know. Do you, do, do you see? So you can go and do a degree in, uh, you know, art or history or whatever, but I mean the teaching certificate. Yeah? 40% leave. So we applied, and the government have given to us the contract. So we're going to launch two new, um, we're going to work with one or two others, but we're going to launch two new teacher training colleges, one in Bristol, we're going to launch one in the Midlands. But most importantly, we're going to form the curriculum and the pedagogy, that is the way of learning about being a teacher, and we take responsibility for initial teacher training from next September, uh, which is an amazing thing, isn't it? And we're going to pack youth work and trauma-informed practice and all of that into it. So other universities will still offer training, but it will be our curriculum that everyone follows. Excellent. Sounds go. great. Just down the road as well. Your curriculum. You are Oasis Bath. There you go. I don't mean, you know, I'm telling you that so you can celebrate what you're part of. Steve, just before your Queen Tribute Act, um, <laughs> could I invite you to pray for us um, as a church here and, and as a community in a hub here in Bath? Yeah. And what I said about the Queen is, then, and this is what I pray for you, what I said about the Queen is that Whatever people think about the monarchy and you know, the royal family and, you know, the wealth and all the rest of it, Elizabeth lived all those years of service for people. And I had the privilege of just watching her on occasions alongside her. And actually the occasion, the opportunity to watch Charles as well. And I can tell you that here are people who give themselves and the queen gave herself constantly, inspired by Jesus, didn't she? Inspired by a faith in Christ to serve others. She was not an arrogant woman. She was somebody who gave her life to others in a certain knowledge that she was rescued, saved, held by the faithfulness of Jesus. So that's why I pray for you. Lord, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for Oasis in Bath. And we pray together, I pray for these people, that you will simply be with them and will embolden them and equip them and give them the resources they need and the networks they need and the openings they need to bring this great news that God loves everyone that we're all in. And now there is an invitation to live like it, to live in the truth, to live creatively in celebration of your love for us. Bless each one. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.